The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week we dive into the topic of genetic counselling. We go deep with Sydney-based genetic counsellor Mona Saleh. Mona opens up about her role as a genetics counsellor, what her work involves and how she helps people and their families across a wide range of genetic issues. As Mona puts it, genetics is a super sexy topic in the world of science, especially at the moment. One of the many things we talk about is what can happen if two people who are related such as first cousins have a child? What can this mean for their offspring? Is the kid more likely to have genetic issues? Before we go to our chat, I wanted to read a poem for you all by the great Lebanese-American poet Khalil Gabran, who both Mona and I think is amazing. This is my favourite poem of his. It's a little long, but it's definitely worthwhile to listen. And please stay on because, of course, we have Mona coming up. Do not love half-lovers. Do not entertain half-friends. Do not indulge in works of the half-talented. Do not live half a life and do not die a half death. If you choose silence, then be silent. When you speak, do so until you are finished. Do not silence yourself to say something and do not speak to be silent. If you accept, then express it bluntly. Do not mask it. If you refuse, then be clear about it. For an ambiguous refusal is but a weak acceptance. Do not accept half a solution. Do not believe half-truths. Do not dream half a dream. Do not fantasize about half-hopes. Half a drink will not quench your thirst. Half a meal will not satiate your hunger. Half the way will get you nowhere. Half an idea will bear you no results. Your other half is not the one you love. It is you in another time yet in the same space. It is you when you are not. Half a life is a life you didn't live, a word you have not said, a smile you postponed, a love you have not had, a friendship you did not know, to reach and not arrive, work and not work, attend only to be absent. What makes you a stranger to them closest to you, and they strangers to you? The half is a mere moment of inability, but you are able for you are not half a being. You are a whole that exists to live a life, not half a life. And now on to my interview with Mona Saleh. Mona Saleh, is that how we say your name? Saleh. Saleh. That's a, yes. It's a Lebanese name, is that right? It is, yeah. Lovely. And what part of Lebanon are your parents from? Uh, North Lebanon. North Lebanon. Yep. Yeah, there'd be some interesting genetics in Lebanon, no? Definitely, um, mm. and particularly since you've um, put down one of your questions about um, parents of first cousins, it's mm. definitely a, a topical one for the Middle East. Excellent. I can't wait to talk about that one. Now, right. I noticed in your bio that you trained as a genetic counsellor originally at the old Royal Alexandra Hospital for Children in Camperdown, and yep. that's uh, that's where I did my very first uh, work experience when I first thought I wanted to be a doctor and I think it was wow. in year 10, yeah. And oh, uh, gorgeous. I remember I was quite sad because I had to look 
you know, see a lot of kids with cancer. That's what I remember about that place. Um, but what were your memories of, of, of training as a genetics counsellor? Well, we did, when we trained, we actually trained on the job. So it was one of, it was my first job as a genetic counsellor because you actually needed to be employed um, to complete the certification process, which is the, the main um, pathway to becoming certified or registered, as they call it today. Um, so it was actually my first job as a genetic counsellor. I'd been working in a lab before that. So it was wonderful. Love the memories. Uh, the buildings were just so quaint. Um, but, you know, definitely the, the, the children and the patients were much more visible because all of the buildings were so small. So to get some fresh air or sunshine, many of the kids and their parents would come out into the, the courtyards and so on. So, you know, I always say to um, anyone that asks, you know, how do you manage working at a hospital and you know, particularly at a children's hospital in those days, um, I just say, look, you don't feel sorry for yourself for very long when you see what little infants are going through and their families, you know, kids looking um, longingly at a bike when, you know, they've got an amputated leg because they've had a bone cancer. You know, heartbreaking stuff that was much more visible in those older buildings because, um, I guess now that you've got the more high-rise uh, hospitals, the wards and the outdoor areas are much more sort of tucked away and so you don't have access um, unless you have to actually go into that area. Before I ask you some questions about your experience there, uh, can you explain mm-hmm. to our listeners exactly what a genetic counsellor does? Sure. Look, genetic counselling to me, in its simplest sense, is a communication process. So it's basically, to me, you're kind of the interpreter, um, helping the family understand what a genetic condition is uh, that their family may be uh, impacted by or they may have had a diagnosis in their family. Um, So you talk them through what the condition is. And when you're talking about a condition in genetics, you're not just talking about signs and symptoms and, and medical histories. You're also talking about how it came about, whether it was inherited through one or both parents, whether it's a new condition that's um, just been uh, as a result of a new mutation in the in the child, for example, who has the genetic condition. So it's much more than the symptoms. It's about how it impacts on the family as a whole. Are there any risks for it happening again in another pregnancy? Um, is there any testing available for other family members who may be concerned that they're at risk of having a child with the same condition? Basically, it's it's about informing and communicating about the impact that that genetic condition can have. Everything from what the condition is and how it progresses for that individual, and 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 also beyond that, and how it impacts on other members of the family and future children. So, when you're talking about those things, sorry, I have to talk about this forever. Great, that's why you I've, know, I've got talk- you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> when you're talking about the implications for extended families and for choices around pregnancy, obviously it brings in all of those other psychosocial issues, which you may not have originally thought you'd be facing by coming along to get a genetic diagnosis. So you might be looking at issues about whether you believe in termination of pregnancy, for example, and it will be different for different members of the same family, you know, having a family that has the same religious values doesn't automatically mean that they, uh, you know, necessarily live those values or believe in those values to the same levels. So it can be quite um, a confronting uh, situation 
if it does impact on other family members. And, and you know, families need to communicate um, when there's a genetic impact. And sometimes communication in families is difficult for lots of other reasons, not even associated to the genetic condition. So all those things can impact over time. And I think the genetic counsellor is just there to help families and individuals who have a diagnosis navigate navigate all those steps along that process. They say that um, genetics counselling is the job of the future uh, in that, you know, technology now enables us to run genetic tests quite quite quickly, efficiently, more affordably, um, and that there is an increased demand in genetics counsellors. What do you have to say about that one? I think there's an increase in demand for genetic counsellors, but I don't think that enough people are aware of it yet. Um, as a career not, option, you mean? Not only as a career option, but just knowing that um, it's really important to actually involve the genetic counsellor in those decisions. When you're talking about the increased availability of genetic testing, you know, there are online tests available now, so there's no geographic barriers. Uh, people can send off their saliva to um, companies overseas where we may not know uh, how um, efficient they are or how uh, scientifically valid their testing procedures are. Um, jumping into a genetic test, even if it seems like a very simple one, even just looking at ancestry, can sometimes uh, lead to very confronting issues. And I think the genetic counsellor's role is to prepare people for that. So even before sending off that saliva, having that test, um, I don't think enough people are aware of the impact that genetic testing can have and how important it is that genetic counsellors are involved um, because one of the main um, issues in genetic testing, whether you decide to have it or not, is informed consent. And that informed consent involves considering all of those implications. For example, that if I find out information about my genes, it's going to impact perhaps on my brothers and my sisters or my children or my parents. Am I prepared or am I, am I prepared to let them know if there is something that they could be proactive about and perhaps prevent a health condition developing in them or their family? Or am I prepared to have that information and not communicate it? And that could be part of the decision of whether to have the test or not. And in terms of encouraging people to open up to their families, how do you how do you encourage them to do that? You know, do you ask them to sit around a, a, the dinner table and just start talking about issues? How do you how do you advise on that? Look, it, it depends on the person and on on the situation. Um, Often if there's a child in the family that has a very, you know, visible condition, family are interested in what's happening. You know, they, they know that the child is going through tests perhaps and, and, and understanding, you know, how is it, how's the child going? Is there anything new that they've found out? Have you had any therapies, for example? And sometimes the genetic diagnosis in the child is a very positive thing because it gives the family some guidance about what the genetic condition means. But then if there's another condition, say, for a susceptibility for cancer, for example, if an adult is found to have that gene that makes them susceptible, um, it's important that they then notify their first-degree relatives because there could be um, you know, more screening done to help them 
uh, find that they find out if they have developed a cancer early on, which can lead to much better outcomes. Obviously, the earlier you find it, and if you know that you're at risk of having one of these cancer susceptibility genes, you can implement that screening earlier or perhaps more often than in the general population. So, how do we get families to talk about it? We talk about how their experience has been with the test. Hopefully, we would have talked to them during the consent time as well. And our consents actually cover those issues of who this information belongs to. Who would you like other, would you, are you happy for other people to be made aware of these results if another family member comes to our clinic? Um, so sometimes we can link up families if they give that permission without them having to directly talk to each other about the issue. We also um, facilitate communication by providing generic letters. So we may say, you know, uh, if, you, if the patient would like to give us the, the postal address uh, or if we could give them some letters to post out to relatives to say that a relative of yours has been identified as having this genetic condition or this genetic predisposition and it would be important for you to go and discuss this with your local doctor and maybe uh, talk about a referral to a local genetic service. So we try and facilitate it in those ways. But definitely if we're, if we're involved early on, all of these things are already in the family's mind that this could potentially come up later on. And so they're in a way preparing for it as well, hopefully. Um, yeah, so depends on the family, depends on the situation, but there are some tools that we have like those generic letters and so on. And they come as templates. So as a genetic counsellor, do you have a lot of support as a genetic counsellor from what, uh, do you have a kind of a, a um, association that people join? Yeah. Yeah, we, we have um, in Australia a special interest group called the of the wider Human Genetics Society of Australasia. So that's our uh, main professional organisation. And the Association of Australasian Society of Genetic Counsellors is a special interest group within that. Um, and so we have, um, we have webinars, we, uh, the ASGC, which is the genetic counsellors and the HGSA is the Human Genetic Society, um, oversee the education of genetic health professionals, including genetic counsellors. Um, and I'll give you all of these resources if you like and you can put them in the, uh, episode notes for people to go and have a look at the website yes, for these yeah. groups. Um, so yes, definitely we share resources. Um, we also just talk to each other and when you work in certain clinics, they may use, prefer a certain way of, of, of describing something. Not all clinics describe things exactly the same. Um, but usually with whichever clinic I've worked at, there has been a, a, a good number of template letters or template phrases, if you like, um, where, you know, where we know that this is a good way to communicate this issue. Um, and you can use those. So we definitely have that professional society and support each other in that way. And how does one become a genetics, genetics counsellor? Yeah, good question. Um, well, genetic counselling is now um, a master's course, uh, which is available both in Sydney and Melbourne at the moment. Uh, the University of Technology has a course that's um, had its first intake of students. Um, so, again, I'll give you those links. And the links are, will, will take you to their web pages where you can have a look at what's involved. Um, so it's a two year master's course and the master's covers everything from, you know, theory of counselling and genetics, genetic testing. Um, also there's some re a research component and obviously also clinical placement. So that, 
master's program is the first step to becoming a qualified or certified charity counsellor. And then the second stage is actually working as a charity counsellor and undertaking your training through the Human Genetics Society of Australasia. And that's a full-time master's? Yes, it is. Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier that you worked at the Children's Hospital in Camperdown. When you think Mm -hmm. back to that experience, are there any Mm. stories or any patients that stood Mm. out and you remember from those days that you want to share with us if you wanted to share a story? Um, Look, there are so many stories. Um, When I was working there, um, the clinic was called the Genetics and Dysmorphology Clinic. So... One thing that was very different then was the language that we used. So dysmorphology means differences in the way that a face is um, visualised, so uh, looking different, I guess, from what we perceive as, I'm using inverted commas, normal or average. So, you know, larger larger size mouth, larger size earlobes, all of those very subtle things that don't mean anything to the general People to the general population, I wouldn't notice anything different about someone's earlobes or the way their eyes are slanting up or down or how, how wide they are. But to people who are trained to look at these very slight differences, they're called dysmorphologists. So genetics uses this um, tool, dysmorphology, um, really uh, greatly to help with the diagnosis because a lot of these subtle changes um, in a person or a child can be pieces of that puzzle to put the diagnosis together. So one thing I noticed when I started working was that we used that word dysmorphology. It was a dysmorphology clinic. And I can imagine saying I've got an appointment for your Timmy at the dysmorphology clinic. It, it, you already, I feel, would, would be anxious and feeling negative. I, I see that as a bit of a negative term. Mm. Um, so I think the main thing I've seen change is the way we talk about conditions. Like they're not always genetic diseases, their genetic conditions. We talk about variations in the way people look. Um, yeah, the word mutation say, isn't very popular anymore, is it? Well, it isn't popular, but it's not DNA's fault. You know, I'm a bit protective of the word mutation, and I think we need to reclaim it <laughs> as genetic counsellors because it's a very, it, it's an accurate way of um, communicating that a mutation changes the message of that gene. So the message needs to be correct, and if there's a mutation, it means that that message is not correct. And for us to say variation, it doesn't really cover it because we all have variations. That's why we're different. But to have an actual mutation which causes a a misspelling in a really important gene, um, that's when you can have disease development and going from what we call genotypes, so the genetic of the condition to having a phenotype or an um, expression of that gene um, with symptoms and so on. But, yeah, going back to the children's hospital, I think it was just um, it was a time for me personally where I was starting my family. I was um, newly married when I started working as genetic counselling and I found it quite uh, difficult when babies were being diagnosed, um, you know, as as having a genetic condition which pretty much, you know, would would label them with something that, you know, was not going to be very pleasant for them in the next four or five years and, and they may, in fact, not be alive after four or five years. And so I found that quite personally 
personally quite difficult. Um, but again, coming back to the support we get from our genetic counselling professional society, part of our um, education and our training is to have supervision. And those are the sorts of things that I spoke to my supervisor about how to deal with when my emotions come up when you're actually um, talking to a family that really is a bit close to home. So that I don't do the family a disjustice because I'm there to uh, be their genetic counsellor and be the best genetic counsellor I can be. Um, but at the same time, um, there's, it's really important to be aware of my own emotions coming up and how to how to understand and acknowledge those emotions but um, not deal with them in front of the patient. Know that they're somewhere safe that I can actually express that. Mm, not always easy to do, is it? No. And sometimes patients will ask you. I mean, I'm sure you probably have those experiences where they ask you about something personal. And, you know, I think that's something as health professionals, some people do like sharing a little bit of their own personal story. Other other people don't. But I, I, I think, you know, I believe that you should do whatever you're comfortable with and be guided by what the patient's telling, asking of you that you feel comfortable sharing. Yeah, I mean, I love talking about my periods. So I often share my periods with yeah. my patients because, <laughs> you know, it's a chick thing. You know, we've got to talk about yeah. these things. Well, most of your patients are women as well. So you've got that in common, haven't you? Absolutely. With yeah. um, with other words, like you you said you didn't yeah. like the word dysmorphology, and I, and I actually like that word because it's a Greek word, so it, oh, it kind of gets me, you know, like phenotype, <laughs> genotype. These are all Greek words, and I just – Bask in it, you know. Oh, well, okay, we'll reclaim that one as well as mutation. <laughs> Are there any yeah. other words that you don't really like? Yeah, look, it's not so much what I don't like. I think it's what the community feels comfortable with. Um, mm. And, I mean, for example, the um, short statured people's association. So achondroplasia, which is a very common short statured condition, dwarfism um, is, is also part of that terminology. So a person with achondroplasia has the most common type of dwarfism, but not many people who have short stature want to be called a dwarf. Mm. So, you know, there are negative connotations in so many aspects of, I guess, all of health um, and the community. But just some examples that I'm aware of, you know, for example, um, you know, the Short Stature People Association is what it's called in some countries, in other countries, it's called the Middle People's Society or Association. So I think different cultures um, feel more comfortable with different words. Um, but I think the important thing as a genetic counsellor is to, to listen to what the community is saying and to adjust the way that we respond um, so that we're trying to um, meet halfway. So we're still getting the right information across. So, for example, you know, somebody doesn't want to say, for example, dysmorphia, you know, have you noticed there's a little bit of a difference between the way that, you know, Timmy's eyes look and the rest of the family? You know, we used to ask people, or we still do, bring along some photos of other family members. Sometimes people will be aware of these things subconsciously, but they just haven't had a word for it. Mm. So, um, you know, being able to make sure that we're getting the right information. So, again, coming back to the fact that genetic counselling is communication, making sure we're getting the right information across, but, you know, in a sensitive um, and caring way that suits the, the patient. Um, and this is assuming the patient speaks English, you know, <laughs> adding yeah. another dimension of working with interpreters. 
mm. is a huge um, challenge in itself. Yeah. Yeah, one of the most memorable cesarean sections I ever had to do was on a um, an achondroplastic, and I'll oh, never okay. forget um, that one of the doctors that I worked with at the time was teasing me because I'm quite small as well, and I could probably be part, right. of, part of those short stature associations. <laughs> um, but he was teasing me about my height, and right. and you know saying things like, "Oh, you know, you're finally getting to operate on someone shorter than you." And I just remember fuming and just thinking, you know, what a dickhead, you know. Um, yeah. And I thought, how is how is how are these small people meant to feel when they hear oh, that? When they see oh. people look at them in a certain way, and oh. um, yeah, I remember feeling very protective of this patient, and I almost felt like I was the right person to be doing that cesarean section, yeah. you know. So Amazing. it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, yeah, definitely. You did a PhD. And uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, look, I, I've been blessed in many ways and one of those is that I was given the opportunity to do a PhD um, as part of a research project looking at the impact of cultural diversity on um, the clinical genetics process. Um, so I come from an Arabic background and they, the research team wanted to look at the Arabic community and how um, genetic services, in particular for familial cancers or inherited cancers, how um, the clinical process fits in with their cultural um, needs and are we doing the right things and, and how can we improve that. Um, so I did that um, doing that project with both Arabic Australians who um, identified through their ethnicity or language as Arabic Australians and I compared their responses to Aussie Australians, so Anglo-Celtic, so two or three generations of Australian slash English Irish, looking at um, a few different measures like what are the concepts around cancer, what are the what are the conditions that they feel run in families or can be inherited, um, who do they talk to about information for genetic conditions, what makes some families get get more health problems. Um, and others tend to stay well. Um, it was really interesting, and it was really um, oh, it was it was actually quite lovely for me because I could relate to the Arabic Australians, but I could also relate to the Anglo Australians because I was born in Australia, but both my parents migrated from Lebanon in the fifties. So I'm sure you know you having a Greek background. Is that what you? Just yes, said. that's right. Yep, you've probably got the two hats that you wore growing up. You know, where you're you're not as Aussie as they come, but you know, you you jump back in languages when you come back home. You know, you say some, I say something's in Arabic, I say something's in English, and you know, those cultural um, influences at home are a huge part of of who you are growing up. And so, being able to go do these interviews with Arabic Australians, and you know. I did a lot of them in their homes, sit around their kitchen table with them. Mm -hmm. It was actually quite beautiful to be able and, and quite um I was really honoured to be invited in. It was almost as if um I was giving them a gift by coming to them. Um whereas I truly acknowledge and know that they were giving me the gift of their opinions and their thoughts and their and their responses to the questions that I was asking about cancer. So these are people that had been to the cancer clinic. Um, and then there was another group of people who hadn't been to the cancer clinic. So just wanted to see what the understanding was about inherited cancers. And yeah, it was, there was some really interesting 
things that came out of it. Um, as you know, a PhD, you know a lot about one thing. You don't know a lot about many things. So I do have, a, I think, a good understanding of, of what the impact is of an Arabic Australian uh, Arabic Australian community coming to a genetic clinic, particularly for inherited cancers. And so we were able to publish some of those results and we provided some training um, and presented at a few conferences on how to approach um, familial cancer in the setting of an Arabic-Australian um, ethnicity. They would have fed you well as well, I'm, I'm sure. They, you would have get, I didn't goodness. want to mention that. But <laughs> all that food. It's all about the food, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah. what things Look, did stick out for you? What what things did you take away from yeah. that PhD? How, how are Lebanese people different to, say, Greek people in that way? Yeah, well, I don't know that we're all that different really, but, you know, there are some specific things for the Arabic community and it wasn't only the Lebanese. I spoke to some people who came from Egypt um, and, and other Arabic-speaking countries, so it's more about the Arabic-speaking. Um, so one of the issues, and, and this was something that I recognised with my own family, is that there's a belief that cancer can, in some ways, you know, be contagious or, you know, someone with cancer drinks from a cup. You know, a couple of people said this, and I'd heard it with my mum as well back in the day. If someone with cancer drinks from a glass, you give them a drink of water. After they leave, you break that glass and you throw it outside. Whoa. It's almost as if you're removing that uh, connection to the cancer. Mm. Um, so whether it's in, whether it's related to a superstition of that negative negativity or whether it's some type, some type of a contagion, you know, these were the same people that would do that who cared lovingly and beautifully for a family member who was dying of cancer. You know, so there's that, you know, double-edged coin or double-edged sword where, you know, there is this negativity around cancer and there's a lot of secrecy as well. Um, many families don't like to tell the, the patient that they have cancer, particularly if um, they don't speak English and they come along to the appointments. They actually ask the health professionals not to tell, um, often it's the elderly parent, not to say cancer in front of them. Um, and that was something that uh, some families found challenging when, you know, English or Australian doctors said, look, I need to, uh, it's my duty of care to inform them of what their diagnosis is, and it didn't match up with what the family actually wished, and, and they, you know, they were, felt that, that the family felt they were protecting that person, um, but it didn't match up with what the, the doctor wanted to tell them obviously, to, to give them their correct diagnosis to the patient directly. So, yeah, very interesting. So younger generations, though, you know, first-generation Australians like yourself and myself, mm. um, they'd be a bit different, though, wouldn't they, you'd think? In oh, terms absolutely. Of, mm. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think with cancer, there's a lot of superstition in many cultures. I mean, even in the, you know, English language, we talk about the big C, you know, the big C. It's, it's cancer's different to other health problems. You know, uh, we all see cancer, you know, in, in some, at, on some level as, a, you know, a little bit of a death sentence or a big mountain we, we need to climb. It's, you know, it's still something that I think hopefully in time will change with better treatments and better outcomes for many people, but we still do refer to it as the big C. So, as I said right at the beginning, I don't think we're all that different, really. You know, we do. Um, many people in many cultures, you know, still believe that cancer can be 
something that, you know, may mean that you, that person may give up and not fight once they know that they've actually got cancer. Whereas if you tell them, oh, it's just a, you know, it's just a problem in your eye, they're just going to do an operation to, you know, fix the nerve up behind your eye. And, you know, people don't give up hope unless they hear that word cancer. So what's your most difficult genetic counselling session to have? What topic, what condition, disease do you find the most difficult to counsel on? I find it really hard. Um, genetics can do, uh, genetic testing can offer some people a test for a condition that they won't develop until later, until later on in life. It's called pre-symptomatic testing. So the Huntington's um, so, type of diseases? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So for mm. conditions like Huntington's disease, it can inform a person um, that they're going to develop this condition, you know, later on in life if, 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 they're, if they're found to have that gene. And that's really tough. I mean, obviously there's a lot of pre, pre-test counselling, you know, preparation and support and so on, but it's never nice to give those results because, um, you know, even if, the patient is, you know, glad that they know they can make some plans now for what they will and won't do with their career or with having children. Um, to them, knowing is better than not knowing, even if the news isn't what they wanted to know. Um, as a genetic counsellor, I think that's something that, you know, will never be easy. And how about your favourite, if there's anything you can <laughs> think of, like a, your favourite genetic counselling session oh, topic? Look- my favourite genetic counselling sessions are, you know, giving good results for, for prenatal testing. Um, you know, coming back to an achondroplasia young lady I, I knew over several pregnancies, she, her, her and her partner both had achondroplasia. And so in that situation, for every pregnancy, there's a one in four chance that the baby will inherit both copies of the achondroplasia mutation. And babies who get the double copy actually um, don't develop uh, normally, don't even develop as well as a baby with achondroplasia. It's a lot more severe. The mm-hmm. bones, particularly of the of the chest, are quite um, small, and so the lungs don't develop very well. And those babies, you know, if they don't pass away before birth, often pass away soon after birth. Mm-hmm. So I've been through a pregnancy with her where she'd had the double achondroplasia in, uh, diagnosed in her baby. Um, her baby lived for a couple of days and then passed away. And so I was able to sort of see her through that. Um, and then, you know, a few months later, she came back pregnant again and we could offer her a, a test and she decided to have the test the first time she decided not to have testing. Um, and the, the result came back that the baby had achondroplasia. So it was a good result. Mm. And so... You know, those sorts of things where you see the, the pain that people have been through to, you know, hopefully, you hope for every patient that you see that there can be some happiness eventually, you know, not to take away everything they've been through, but to be able to sort of come through that and have that healthy baby um, with achondroplasia was just wonderful um, for me as a genetic counsellor to, to, to be a part of. I wanted to also ask you about uh, parents being related. So, say first cousins mm-hmm. getting married, mm-hmm. or not getting married, and having kids together. Yep. Uh, what does that mean for them? Uh, you mentioned earlier that in Lebanon, it's quite common that that happens. 
yeah, look, there are lots of cultures where it, it's actually seen as, as a very positive thing. My grandparents were first cousins back in Lebanon. Uh, my parents weren't, though. They were from different villages, neighbouring villages, but different villages. Look, the, the word that's used for uh, parents that are related, that have children, is called is consanguinity. Um, I'm not sure if it's Greek. I'll have to look that no, up. It's, it's it's not, no, it's not. Because con oh, is with in Latin and sangue is blood. Oh, there you go. So it's, it's a, <laughs> I, the, the Latin people can take that one. All right. Oh, you're <laughs> such <laughs> very generous of you. <laughs> so um, so in, in, in lots of cultures where consanguinity or marriage between relatives is very common, a first cousin marriage um, is, you know, a positive thing. It, the families can see that, you know, the the money in the family is staying um, staying put, you know, it's not being taken to another another family or another village. The girl will be looked after because we know the family of the boy who she's marrying and vice versa. Um, so it's a very positive thing in many cultures. And, you know, if if my child, not that they'd ever dream of it of, of, with their cousins because it's a very different cultural um situation in Australia, but if my child were to say they wanted to have a relationship with their first cousin, it's not something that I disagree with. I think it's mm. something that many people have success with. Um, it does increase the, the risk of having a child with what we call recessive conditions, autosomal recessive, because you're more likely to share the same gene changes um, if you're marrying someone within your family. So for a first cousin, for any couple who aren't related, we've all got a 2 or 3% background risk of having a baby with, with something when they're born. If you add that extra shared genetics background of a first cousin relationship, it doubles it to about 46%. So it's still most likely that first cousins will have healthy children. Um, the, the issue in some cultures, however, is that the consanguinity is um, concentrated, if you know what I'm saying. So first cousins marry and then those children then go on to marry each other, the first cousins of the second cousins. And so you're related in more than one um, line or lineage. Uh, so first cousins share the same grandparents, but you could have a couple that share the same grandparents on the mother's side and then share the same grandparents on the dad's side. You know, it's hard to explain it without diagrams, but if you can just imagine that within a, a village or a community, um, you know, you're related to someone as a first cousin, but you're also related to them um, because as a, you know, a second cousin to a different relative. So that concentration of genetic information that you share increases the more relationships that are added to that um, that coupling of that of those two people. Does that make sense? Makes sense. I was thinking, <laughs> though, I wonder if um. Divorce rates are higher or lower in can consanguineous relationships. I don't know about that. I'd say they're I probably lower. <laughs> I'd say they're probably lower. I'm mean, this is totally yeah. me hypothesizing only because, you know, yeah. often when families encourage relationships, yes. it may be more likely again within the family, as you said. Yeah. And uh mm. yeah, but I wonder if Look, that study's I, been done. I've never personally seen a couple where the family arranged the marriage. It's always been couples coming or genetic counselling because it's a relationship that they want to pursue. Mm. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure about the divorce rate, but certainly the, you know, the couples that I've met have all wanted to willingly 
have a relationship with that relative. And how do you how do you get good at communicating as a genetics counsellor? Because you brought the word up a few times, communication. Mm. Can you advise any any future genetic genetics? I keep having difficulty <laughs> saying that. Where genetics counsellors on how best they can communicate. Um, I think the best way to communicate is is the way we do it every day. You know, you listen, which is just as important as talking. Um, in genetics, we're very lucky because our appointments are a little bit longer than most other medical appointments. So we've actually got time to engage with people, establish um, a bit of a, a relationship with, you know, we don't just say, oh, you know, take a seat, what's wrong? It's more about, you know, how did you go getting here? Can you, you know, often you've spoken to the family, to one of the parents or the person who's coming along. Often you've spoken to them over the phone um, to take a little bit of a family history from them. Um, so you've already got a, an idea of what their main questions are. So you can build on from that. Um, so again, the communication, I think, the communication is best done where it's a two-way process. Um, and, and taking the time to get to know how that person uh, communicates. Uh, you know, some of my colleagues that I know, you know, work in different parts of the city where, you know, education levels, socioeconomic status is different in different parts of Sydney, as you know. And sometimes you need to adjust the way that you speak, the language you speak, you know, to, to make you connect more with that person. Um, if there's a different language or a, a difference in um, intellectual ability, you may use more diagrams than words. Um, if there's an interpreter there, you know, you may spend some time with the interpreter beforehand to explain it so that you know that the interpreter understands because you don't want to be explaining it to the interpreter and then they're explaining it for the first time and they've just learnt what you're trying to get across. So. We do, uh, you know, training with interpreters who, who we um, work with in the hospitals. We like to make sure that they're up to date with the common things that we'll be facing and the things that we'll be explaining so that they are aware of what the words are. Um, yeah, just that two-way process always is, is what communication is to me and listening is just as important as, um, as talking. And, you know, as I said, we, you could often do the pre-clinic call and, and again, there's also a follow-up call so that, you know, if you, there is a lot to take in at the appointment. There may have been a diagnosis. There may have been, you know, something shocking that, that they may not have taken in because, you know, as soon as you said the name of the condition, they sort of blocked out everything you said after that. You know, we always follow up with a really detailed letter to the doctor that referred them and copy the family in and then um, the genetic counsellors always um, will try to do a follow-up phone call as well uh, to see if there are any questions or anything that um, that wasn't addressed at the time. Yeah. I have to say genetics counselling um, and, and the letters that genetic genetics counsellors give out are just juicy, mm -hmm. juicy as. I love them. <laughs> They're so detailed and I learn so much when I read one. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, it's good to I, know you read them. I, I, I love, I love them. I have to set some time oh, aside. Good. I'm like, I'll oh, have a coffee and I'll read that one, <laughs> and I'll learn something for sure. Um, yeah. Patients wanting to get in touch with genetics counsellors, how do they do that? How do, how does one source a genetics counsellor? Mm. Well, you can have a look at the um, website for the Australasian Society of Genetic Counsellors. Um, most. Main public hospitals in Australia 
and New Zealand will have um, a genetic, the genetic clinical genetics service where genetic counsellors will be working. There are also private genetic counsellors, so you can always just ask Google. Um, yeah, so it, we're out there, and um, even your GPs should be aware of, of the genetic services that they can refer to. And um, yeah, you've worked Take with the Centre for Genetics Education, is that right? And still work with them? Yep. Yeah, that's yeah, a fantastic resource, an amazing yeah, resource. Yeah, so, so that's in New South Wales, but um, Ministry of Health have that. And so there's fact sheets there. There's also a listing of genetic services that are available through um, throughout Australasia on that website. That's genetics.edu.au. Um, but, uh, oh, I forgot my train of thought. So who funds that, the government, you said? Yeah, that's, yep. that's funded by the Ministry of Health. Uh, mm. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, obviously the website's available for everybody, even mm. though it's a New South Wales um, centre. Yeah, so yeah. And, and I love your um, for you. your your Twitter handle DNA Down Under. Yeah, <laughs> that's my personal one. So yeah, I do I do enjoy getting all the news from Twitter, and um, yeah, it's all, always you know even today there was some first round of funding announced from. Um, Commonwealth government looking at um, genomics, particularly for children's diseases, which mm. is just wonderful. All the you know, and Medicare are now funding um, genomic testing for childhood syndromes. That was just announced. So for pediatricians who can now order that testing for for children. Um, so yeah, gen- genetics and genomics is really becoming part of mainstream healthcare. So it's a good time to be. Um, engaging with you and with others that work in the non-genetic health areas. So it's great that you're reaching out and um, doing things like this podcast to hopefully raise awareness. I mean, I've been wanting to do genetics counselling for a while, but every time I look online, it's always a full-time course and I can't study full-time, so it's just a real shame. But um, it's 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 such a fantastic area to to, um, explore. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you some questions now, personal sure. questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Mona, which people have been your biggest inspirations in your life? Uh, I think in my – I can sort of go personal and work. In my personal life, look, I think it's it's got to be my parents who – particularly my mum. She was a bit of a trailblazer. What's her she name? She migrated. Barbara, she's Barbara. not with us anymore, unfortunately. Oh. Barbara in English. Barbara. So I've never Barbara. heard a Lebanese woman called being called oh, Barbara before. Bless her. I love her. Barbara came, <laughs> came out with her dad, so they migrated to Australia. She came out here with her dad in the early fifties, and she'd already met my dad in Lebanon. Um, but she said, "You know, I'm not ready to um, shack up with anyone yet. I've got the world to explore." So she came over to Australia with her dad you know, looking for new opportunities. And a year or two later, Dad came over and they got married here. So, you know, they they pretty much built a life from nothing. And, you know, Mum was always grateful to the opportunities Australia gave her and her family. Mm. So I I really was – I'm always inspired by, you know, how positive she was and how smart she was. She never really went to school, but um, she was really clever and a fantastic knitter. You would have loved Bart. Wow. I, think, I think you're a bit crafty, aren't you? I am. She, um, I actually she, ended yeah. up buying a book today about how to start embroidery. 
Oh, good on you. I, I, I just, um, I had these vivid memories of walking through David Jones with her. You know, this was even before mobile phones were out. And she'd just stop at a, at a cardigan or a jumper or a blazer and she'd stop and she'd stare at it. And I'd say, what are you doing, Mum? And she'd say, I'm just looking at this stitch, this knot mm. and this twist. And she'd almost take a photograph of it in her mind. And then first thing when she got home, she'd get those knitting needles out and she'd duplicate that pattern. Wow. Unbelievable. So she'd do all these fancy knots and twists. So she really inspired me to, you know, you don't need to have an education to be mm. a, a smart cookie. But do you still wear, do you have any of her jumpers? Do you have any of her I do. I, I do. She made all, I was lucky enough that she, you know, lived long enough to make a little blanket for all my kids when mm. they were born. So they've all got those. Um, and I've got a couple of um, jumpers that she made me. Yeah, and I, I love knitting now, so I inherited all their knitting and crochet needles. Oh, so. that's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful, actually. I love them. I love using them because I, I know that, you know, they've been through her hands before that's me. Just so, yeah. Love it, love it. It is, yeah, it's really sweet. Um, and look, I have to mention, particularly, you know, I've done a lot of work in genetics um, with support groups. Um, some of the families, as I said, that have been through such um, horrible um, situations, tragedy, tragic situations, look, then come back and say, look, how can we help this be better for the next person that goes through this? So these support groups that come out of these situations for very, you know, you know, I mean, we've got the big support groups like the Down Syndrome Association. They're amazing. They support families and, you know, women and couples who have a diagnosis in pregnancy helping them understand what Down syndrome means, um, if they're making that decision of whether to continue the pregnancy or not or to support them if they are continuing. Some of the rare diseases as well that don't really fit into those big support groups. So many families give so much of their time and effort into raising awareness of rare diseases. And I don't know whether you're, you know, on top of all the news and, and so on, but the rare diseases have just recently, you know, been funded to look at a to have a, a national rare diseases framework. So for all those conditions that on their own are very rare, but together are a huge part of, of, of the conditions that families struggle with when there's no diagnosis. And to be able to have support for those families has really come from the hard work of the individual groups and individuals that have already been through the struggles. Um, so they, they provide support where there's nowhere else to go, really. So they're absolutely inspiring because they're living, living with what, living with the difficult situation, but then wanting things to improve for the future, which is really wonderful. And, uh, I could imagine as a genetics counselor, you would have a, a massive list of, of support groups. That would be. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. There's lots um, in Australia. There's lots, um, obviously, all over the world. Um, Australia's main umbrella support group is the is um, Genetic Alliance of, of Australia. Um, so they're based at the Garvin, and they do a lot for um, the support groups all over Australasia, um, helping them, you know, with resources and um, education and, and keeping the support, the people that are running those support groups supported because it can be a very um, draining and often expensive. You know, there's not much funding for these small groups, and so they help them um, with resources and, and, and support. And what are some favourite books of yours that you'd like to share with us? 
look, I love books and I, I never read enough, but that's okay. One book that I always have handy is The Prophet by Khalil Jibril, mm, which is a Lebanese, yes. <laughs> Lebanese prophet. I was lucky enough to go to Lebanon and visit his home where he grew up. So, you know, it meant a lot to me before, but it means even more now. And it's funny, I've had, um, you know, quotes from from that book, The Prophet, at some of the happiest occasions in my life and at some of the saddest occasions in my life, but I still love it. So, yeah, I, and I get something different from it every time I pick it up. Um, I love all the Khaled Hussaini books, The Tight Runner, A Thousand Splendid Sons. I've read those a couple of times. I just love those stories of um, a world that we don't even know about living in Australia, mm. you know, set in, in these war-torn countries that, where there's such um su- such um oh, poorness isn't a word. What's the word? <laughs> yeah. Such low um levels of low living standards and mm. low yeah. It's unbelievable. And the joy that they get through life. You know, we can learn so much from the communities that have so little um and still um have so much joy in their life. So yeah, I like I like lots of different books. Um but they're a couple of my favourites. Have you read uh, Syria's Secret Library? No. You would love that. Let me write that down. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if you Syria's like, yeah, Secret Syria's Secret Library. Library. So it's it's Lovely. a true story of um. Oh, excellent. I mean, in a in a small Syrian town, they managed to keep a library going underground. Oh my goodness, that mm. sounds awesome. Mm. Oh, when you read you. this book, you realise, wow. I mean, I didn't. Realized the magnitude of the issues in Syria until mm. I read this book, and it made me, it just put me into another world. Oh, I love it! Mm. Sounds perfect. I'll get onto that immediately. <laughs> now, songs that make you happy. Look, I pretty much like anything I can sing along to, so <laughs> as long as I know the words, I'm happy. But I am a bit of an eighties tragic. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I love um, I love Cool and the Gang. I love George Michael. Oh yes, um, Prince. Yes, thank my, you. Prince is Prince. my god. <laughs> yes, I went to his home in two thousand and seventeen. Oh, yes. Oh my goodness, it was I one of the highlights you. of my life. Oh, I've actually got goosebumps. I saw Prince a few times. I was actually proposed to by my ex-husband, but it was a lovely proposal at a Prince concert. That's fantastic. <laughs> it is fair, but that's for another time. I wonder but, what um, song Prince was playing that inspired that one. Oh, well, it was actually before the concert. It was oh. at the um, it was at the Sydney Cricket Ground, and it was general admission, so you had to get there early. So we got there a couple of hours earlier. Oh, here we go. I'm telling you the story now. <laughs> um, so we took Scrabble to just play Scrabble while we were waiting to, for the con, for the concert to start. And I was, you know, looking at, through my binoculars, how are they setting up the stage? Where's it coming out from? We've got some good seats here. And suddenly I looked down at the board and it said, will you marry me in the Scrabble letters? <laughs> That's awesome. And I hadn't even noticed that letters had been disappearing and words had been changed. I was so preoccupied with being at the Prince concert. So there you go. Love that. He what year was that? Very special. Oh my god, nineteen ninety. 1990... Oh, stop it! How old am I? Nineteen ninety-two. That was the year Four I finished one. high school. I think the same year. Stop it! Mm. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and what is your dream collaboration? Oh, 
certainly have one. <laughs> I collaborate all every day. I, 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 I've actually found that a really hard question. Well, aren't you blessed, um, eh? Every day. I am really blessed. Hashtag blessed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I love working with, um, I love, I love genetics. I love sharing genetics with other people. I mean, doing this is a dream collaboration, talking to you and, and bringing the messages out. Um, yeah, I am very blessed. I, I'm, I love the people I work with. So I've been given lots of opportunities to be part of some wonderful teams. Um, so yeah, I think I'm pretty much living the dream. That's awesome. So just Thank to you. finish. Yeah. What, what are the, what, what are the, you know, uh, words of encouragement that you might have, a, 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 you know, a year 12 kid who's thinking, oh, I might want to be a genetics counsellor. Why yeah. would, why should they do it, Mona? Oh, look, it, I think being a genetic counsellor is, is great because I loved science growing up and genetics is about science and it's really fun science. Um, but it's also about people. So it blends those two things where you, you get to have the scientific knowledge and use it, but you also get to um, communicate it and um, help educate people uh, in terms of staying in touch with the humanity side of science. So I, I think we're very, very lucky as genetic counsellors to have the best of both worlds in some ways. Um, it's probably similar to what you do. You know, you have your patient contact, but it's imperative that you stay up to date with all mm. the techniques and procedures. And, you know, if you love genetics and you love um, people, it's a great job to be. Um, to people who are already genetic counsellors, I think the best advice is to have as much empathy for yourself and for your colleagues. So be aware of your colleagues and how they're going and how you're going. Um, try and treat yourself and your colleagues which is, with as much empathy and respect as you do for your patients because genetic counsellors do a great job for the patients. Um, so we can all be reminded to, you know, care for ourselves as much as we do for the for the people that we work for every day. Yeah. We're going to have you on time and time again. I can see this. So everybody who's <laughs> listening, this is only the beginning of Mona Saleh. Thank you, Mona. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Tash. It's lovely to chat to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Mona and that it's made you more curious about the world of genetics or encouraged you to read a book on the topic or maybe even inspired you to become a genetics counsellor. You know who you could contact if you had any questions about that one. I hope it made you question things and that you learnt lots like I did. Please share this episode with others if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like an interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay fantastic.